0: Look
1: over here. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Jaja, beside with the brightest light. And I shine upon you, them, blind. our dairs of the truth and life. They are so for truth and life. Right. And until the day that was so takes light. Babylon will hear my voice, our dairs of the truth and life. Come as for truth and life. Alright, right, so welcome everybody to another episode of the Checkmate podcast, political podcast by Tenementia Media. If you have time, you can check out our historical podcast, let's see we forget. We're going get into the episode. So recently, Capri you know, our favorite think tank um, in the Caribbean, they released a report called Fix the Village, Governance and Accountability for Children in State Care in Jamaica. Now, um, this is coming off the strength of the Indicom report that was dropped in first week in February, I believe, about the unjust... And the human rights violation, right, happening to the young boys at the real Cobra Correctional Facility. So it does make sense, you understand that, you know? Yeah. But can I just go back to the episode first? You understand come back to this if you can. Alright. So yeah, so back to Capri. So in this episode, we are going to speak to Dr. Liam Levers. 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 <laughs> <Livers>. Wait. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Leon Levers. And she is the director of advocacy at Capri. And we're just going to have a great, a great conversation and and dissect and, and the report. Um, Dr. Levers, can you just introduce yourself, please, to our listeners?
0: Hi. I think you've done a pretty good job of it already, but I'm Leanne Levers. I'm the Director of Advocacy at CAPRI, which is the Caribbean Policy Research Institute, and I'm also the lead researcher for the State Care Report, which we're about to discuss. All right. Great, great, great. Appreciate that.
1: So um, I... Would appreciate if everybody read really the report or even know what's going what's going on in it. But if you haven't as a life go. But um one of the first questions I want to ask um Dr. Levers is, is why did you guys choose to do this report? I know Capri do a lot of reports from about uh, the environment, governance, social issues, other social issues happening, but why this report ex- specifically?
0: Well, the EU had funded a series of 10 reports around uh, governance issues and gender issues. And I think this topic had been particularly important. As you said, it's been it's been a situation or a problem that we've been noticing for quite some time. And I think there have been a lot of reports about state care in Jamaica. Many, many, many reports, but I don't think that there has been a report that's looked at some of the systematic issues, as opposed to just reporting what the issues are um, in terms of what we see manifesting in practice. So we know that, ho- you know, we know that children are not treated well, and we know that children are living in substandard conditions, but we don't really look at some of the systematic reasons that that's in place. And so this report kind of injected a different element of the discussion, which I think was absent from all of the reports since about 2004. Although the UNICEF also has just put out a report about state care in Jamaica that is quite comprehensive in its. All right, so, so, so thank you, thank you, thank you. So, all right, so you guys
1: understand it, why this is important. I think all the, the we did an episode back with Jamaica Environment Trust and. Just a question I always like to ask people why they do the report, because mm-hmm. I, I feel like people do think that Jamaica is a great place. um, There's a reason why reports are done, because clearly there's an issue. So, yeah. All right. So we we'll could just go right in, into the episode now. So um, what I wanted to do is to expand on the data given a report, which shows that the state is indeed filling in its duty. To provide a short-term replacement for the family unit that key phrase there short-term replacement because i think that's the that that's the role that um state homes and foster care and everything are in that industry is supposed to do however i, I know in the Capri report um there were different data that shows that yo um something all wrong here um there were issues where children in state care have a higher percentage um, of abusing drugs. Um, there were issues where they have more difficulty in gaining employ- em- employment. So can you just expound on the data that give evidence that the
0: state is feeling its duty? Sure. Well, I think it's important to know that, I mean, Jamaica is not in isolation in this In this scenario, there are many, many countries that suffer from poor state care, particularly countries that are under-resourced like ours. Um, And I think, as you said, state care is really supposed to be a temporary replacement for the family unit, because we know, based on research across the world, that the best place for a child to be raised is, is within a family. Regardless of, you know, how poor that family is, it's still better than a state care environment. And so I think Jamaica has been, as an under-resourced country, has had issues in terms of making sure that children have access to education, that they have access to psychological support. Because I think you also need to remember that many of the children who go into state care are children who are already having issues. There are children who are already vulnerable. Either they've been orphaned and they're suffering from grief, you know, having lost their parents and they don't have the family support that's necessary or they've been abused and had to be removed from their home, which is, in and of itself is traumatic. Um, some of the, Many of them have disabilities. Many of them are unwanted by their families. And so that in and of itself, again, carries its own trauma. So you're already dealing with a vulnerable set of individuals, and then by moving them into state care on a permanent level, on a on a long term scale, obviously has compounding effects on that trauma. So lack of access to education, because we know that there are limited um, spaces for children in state care are limited resources we don't have many psychologists that are able to support the children through this through their difficult time um you know and then on top of that you what we found within a Jamaican context is that many of them are sub, are subject to abuse within the homes as well whether that's fighting amongst themselves or at the hands of staff that are meant to be protecting them and caring for them
1: mhm Okay, all right, yeah, because and there's some there's the income report says that young boys were being chast, were being beaten, were they were being abused by persons who worked there. But there's a in the in the Capri report there's an interesting um figure that says that between I think 2005 to 2010 there was 161 cases of physical abuse happening to children in the in the in the state in the state homes. So. It's like, all right, the data back up the stories, you understand? So that was one definitely,
0: thing. Definitely, it does back up the stories. Uh, you're right. So between 2006, 2010, they found more than 500 reported cases of abuse generally. And as you said, 161 of those were perpetrated by staff. So these are individuals that are meant to be protecting children from harm. And, you know, we, it's it's really disheartening to hear that children are you know, being abused by persons that are meant to be trusted individuals that have been given the responsibility of taking care of of our youth. Mm-hmm. Alright.
1: So um also in the copy report is a lot of legislative issues that contribute to the lack of effectiveness of what is going on right now, right? And we we'll soon touch upon that. Soon touch upon that, right? Because it's 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 there's a issue of And this has been said a lot. Like, I think every administration has said it. And even in the JLP manifesto, they have said it as well that they are going to amend um, the CCP. That's the CCPA. um, That's the Child Children. The Child Care Protection Act. Child Care Protection Act. Yes, that's it. Right. And outlining Section 24 of that same act is the issue of uncontrollable. And it's a, it's a term referring, referring to children. I, I remember speaking to Alexis back in that episode, I guess that's episode five, maybe, please, maybe, episode five of this season, where he speaks on the fact that the labeling children have consequences, right? Because it could be children who are facing abuse in their homes, who, when they go, um, they are termed uncontrollable children were um of the LGBTQ plus communities are labeled uncontrollable. And even and Capri report shows that sixty percent of all children, right, in the state homes are labeled uncontrollable. Right. So um Dr. Levers, can you speak on how the issue of labeling children uncontrollable um affects the effectiveness
0: of what's going on? Well, I mean the term in and of itself is problematic, right? The term Uncontrolled means that they are so difficult that they have to be put in the care of the state because their parents cannot manage them. And I think that creates a certain stigma around these children and so it makes them less likely to be adopted it makes them less likely to be fostered because there's a stigma attached to them to say these children cannot be handled within a family setting which is far from the truth as you said many of the children who enter state care enter state care because they're orphaned because their parents are no longer around or because they've been abandoned at birth you know we have a high portion of Children that are in state care from birth because they've give, they've been given up by their parents. So how is it that we're deeming children who are four, five, six, seven as uncontrollable when they've not even been given a chance to be um, to be given the the adequate care? some of the children that we've spoken to some of the former wards of the state that we've been that we've spoken to when they're returned to state care if they've been fostered and they're returned to state care or if they're out of state care and get into trouble and subsequently end up in state care as well become labeled as uncontrollable and are actually treated as uncontrollable so they're punished they're denied access to education and so the stigma carries Issues or creates issues, not just in terms of their capacity to leave state care, but also how they're treated within state care as well. And so no child should be treated as if they are a problem or an inherent issue, you know, and if there are issues that children have, what we should be doing is really supporting them through those difficulties rather than labeling them um, and condemning them to one identity or to a specific idea, which causes them to be treated even worse than they would be if they just came into state care for other reasons. Mm-hmm. I got you,
1: got you, got you. And, and, and as I said before, Capri has figures that 60% of all children in state homes are living uncontrollable. And I know, as I before, JLP, come out and say them, girl. you know? I'm in of here, i So, you know, we'll wait on Esther or pressure him. Whichever one him feel like is better. <laughs> yeah. um, there's... Just there's also an issue which it's not even I'm going to put it on it's fun, but it's an issue that that I, I it's I think it's uncontrollable, but it's it's a shocking thing, you know, as a cisgender woman, understand. Um, you already understand how vulnerable it is living in Jamaica, right? Um, but one of the things that really took took it was there was a figure in the couple report that said the average k the average age for young girls in state care who are exposed to the first time they're exposed to any kind of sexual um activity is 11 years old and it's like that's rape that's rape and then and they are still going to be labeled uncontrollable because I don't believe it. they're supposed to study stay in an environment um like that. So um is what seeing that can you can just tell me how your reaction personally as the, has the head researcher when you saw that figure or came
0: up with that figure? Well, interestingly enough, well you first of all you're right. We need to start changing the language around how we, even within the context of this report, the average age of intercourse for children in state care is 11 years old. I mean, that is rape. You know, we know that the legislation, the Sexual Offenses Act says that under the age of 16, children cannot, or young girls and boys, um, cannot consent to six below the age of 16 and it really has to do with this idea of adultification of young girls and we see this predominantly taking place in countries in developing countries and in developed countries to minorities black girls mm-hmm. uh, asian girls where young girls are not seen as girls they're seen as women you know once they get to a certain age there's been previous research a lot of research has been done actually by unicef Um, and by other organizations which show that we don't recognize the fact that girls, you know, girls who are having sex that are underage, as long as they're not being held down, if they're being, we don't see coercion as as rape. Um, And we need to really get a very nuanced understanding of what rape is. It's not just holding someone down, or forcing someone, it's coercion, it's exploitation, it's understanding that regard, even if a girl says yes, if she's under the age of 16, it is still considered rape. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what we found within the context of state care is that many of the girls are being raped um, either by older girls in the institution or by older boys in the institution, or by staff members as well. You know, we've seen in the UNICEF report, which came out in 2018 as well, that actually staff members were um, coercing young boys and girls to have sex with each other, which again is rape because they're doing it under the duress, even though they're engaging with each other and both of these children are underage, they're engaging under the, under the duress or under the direction of an adult. And so it manifests itself in many ways. But the fact, I I think for me personally, I wasn't necessarily surprised because it is consistent with what we found. You know, the other statistics show that I think between 2011 and 2014, the average age of uh, intercourse, the first instance of intercourse for young girls was around 14 years old. So it's very consistent with with which Sorry, it's very consistent with what is happening in the wider society as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, got, got you. Um,
1: can you also touch on the other legislative issues, which um, outside of the the, the, the CCPA um, that hinders the effectiveness of what's
0: going on at state homes? Well, the review of the CCPA is one thing. Within the CCPA, it's important to note that um, you know the the child protection and care agencies have gone through a number of structural changes. So we saw Mm -hmm. that the CDA was responsible first, which is the Child Development Agency, and then somewhere around 2013, 2011, um, somewhere between 2011 and 2013, the decision was made to create the CPFSA, which is the Child Protection Family Services Agency, and that the CDA would actually sit underneath the CPFSA Mm -hmm. alongside number of other organizations so the national children's registry and so on but as we know legislative review takes a very long time and so the cpfsa the the legislation has not been updated to reflect the responsibility of child care and protection being attached to the cpfsa and so legally even if something does go wrong or if there's somebody within the cpfsa to be held accountable it's impossible to do so because the legislation doesn't allow for it there is mm-hmm. no na- the body that is responsible for child care and protection in Jamaica under the Child Care and Protection Act. Right. Uh, so that's one of the main issues that we see with the CCPA. Um, the same thing for the Adoption Board. We have an Adoption Act, which I think was has been in place since 1952 or 1958. So that's before independence. And it has not been updated there's been no review of the adoption act, and as a result, there's no legislative authority for the adoption board. And what you see is that many of the many of the responsibilities that should be attached to the adoption board are not attached to the adoption board because the legislation attaches that to the responsible agency for child care and protection, which is under the CCPA. So the CPFSA ends up carrying out a lot of um, a lot of the responsibilities that really should be handled by the adoption board for the sake of accountability, for the sake of transparency, to make sure that, you know, there's uh, proper protocols in place and children are being adopted, that there's due diligence done to make sure that the checks and balances are done in terms of potential adopters, people who are seeking to make these adoptions. And so what it causes is that there's a huge delay in um, in children being adopted which is the purpose of the child care and protection we want children to be transferred out of care, as outside of institutional care as quickly as possible mm-hmm. and I think the report indicates that in 2020 there were over 130 adopters waiting the one of whom had been or a few of whom had been approved since 2011 so you can see that there is more than a 10 year, more than an 8 year um, gap in terms of how long it takes to actually get a child once you've been uh, approved as an adopter? Um, I mean, um,
1: Capri report also has also said that less than one percent of all children um, in state care are adopted each year. I remember seeing that and being like, ah, all right,
0: figures, love that. So exactly, uh, and. Then, you know, the purpose of the the CPFSA, its stated intention is to make sure that children are transitioned into family-based care. But what actually happens is that many children end up staying in state care until they're 18. They age out. They may go through the transitional program, which is now available and has been available since about 2014, I believe. Um, but they're, you know, they've, they've left without knowing what it's like to be a part of a family. They feel alienated from the society. They've, you know, they've experienced their own trauma within state care that compounds the trauma that put them in state care to begin with. And so you you're essentially creating individuals, the state itself is creating individuals that are not equipped to be a part of the society. They're less likely to get, as you said, educational attainment. They're less likely to get um, jobs. They're, less, they're more likely to participate in crime. And so you're really creating a group of young people that are not fit to participate in society. Um, and you know that has its own consequences in terms of crime, in terms of the dependence on the state. I think we spend approximately $3 billion on state care as it stands now. And we know that we're under resource, but certainly these resources could be used to make sure that the children that are coming out of state care are, you know, well-equipped to become contributing members of society.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. So um, there's a, a line in Capri um, report. I wrote it down. I wrote it down. I'm just getting back, catching back, sketching back. Okay. There's a line in Copy Report, right? That says contribute. It, it, then this line um is, is, a, is, a, is like four different issues. But this line stand out because I love this, you know. This, this is underneath the issue of calling a politician, right? Which that's the only thing I'm an advocate for to call a politician, right? So this is what the line says that there is a disparity between policy and implementation where guidelines are not adhered to without any measures for accountability, right? And what just want uh, Dr. to leave. just expound on that issue because there was another piece of data in the report that says that 63%, the, the in 2011 alone, 63% of visits to aid facilities were actually done. And there's a constant irregul- irregular monitoring of um CDA offices, the foster homes, right? And then there's also irregular monitoring, right, to um these facilities. I know Ria Cobra, when we the cost board when in the dropped them report yesterday there was no fun um in the in, in at the at the institution and that the young boys they had to be turning electrician overnight to wire stuff together to get even light. Um, the 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 most the biggest one of which um I've in my recent years because I'm young um was um what happened in May two thousand and nine say um yeah with the young girls um when that fire happened Armadale when the issue, when Armadale fire issue happened in May. The, the The room that it happened to was overpacked, right so that's also contributed um to their deaths. Um, and then and I think um what's that place called Walker's Place of Safety. A um, couple years back, two 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 children died. says so like, yeah, the, monitor, the monitoring and holding people accountability is not it's not being done. So can you actually expone on that?
0: Sure. Well, I think it's important to say that it's not necessary. That element of it is a practice element. So the fact that we don't have enough monitoring officers, that's the first thing. The monitoring officers that are there are not adequately trained um, and they're not adequately monitored themselves to make sure that the quality of monitoring reports that they're producing are actually... Telling an accurate story of what's going on in the homes, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a serious lack of training, there's a serious lack of um consistency. And in terms of the failure to hold them accountable, that is a governance issue, you know? So that is a thing around the legislation. So, what does the legislation say when these things happen? And the truth is, is that this is why the Child Care and Protection Act and the, Adoption Act need to be in place and reviewed. That's why some of the international legislation that we mentioned in the report around UN guidelines on alternative care will provide a standard that is adequate to make sure that monitoring officers are doing their jobs properly. Because what you found in Walker's place of safety was that many of the reasons that, you know, the, the fire occurred and many of the reasons that two of the children died is because there were Lack of protocols in place. There were issues around hiring. So, we found that many of the managers that were responsible were not actually adequate in terms of their capacity to become managers within these homes. Um, So, that's around hiring and so on. And then, what you see on a governance level, in terms of the strategic level, is that actually, while the Ministry of Education is the governing ministry, it has very little power over the CPFSA. Wait, wait, Dr. Livers. We just want to talk about that. Wait.
1: Before you touch on the Ministry of Education. Mm -hmm. Same on the accountability, right? Going through the report, I'm realizing there's a lot of acronyms. There's a lot of bodies (laughs) and a lot of boards. And I'm like, you're all basically doing the same thing. Like, and it's spread across ministry. Like, Ministry of Security, in charge of one something, Ministry uh, uh education in charge I want, someone, ministry, you, ministry, it, want some, some ministry of youth ministry of it some someone ministry health It's like a, it spread over ministries right and then not having regular meetups to even be like all right this is what my ministry said they now have that and there's like these blood too much organizations so yeah so continue no
0: just just wait, yeah. wait. We'll say that it, it, No, you've made a good point because that's something that's systematically problematic across all ministries and across all issues. When you look at the environment report that we published um, some years ago, you'll see that many of the agencies that are responsible for the regulation of the environment across several ministries, more so than even within the context of state care. But within the context of state care, we see that you know, um, the CDA slash CPFSA, the, so the Child Development Agency slash Child Protection Family Services Agency, moved from Ministry of Health to Ministry of Education. Um, you know, the Sisoko, which is responsible for, um, you know, the investigation of sexual offenses against children, um, that sits under the Ministry of National Security, Um, The CPFSA, even though it sits under the Ministry of Education, is actually financed directly by the Ministry of Finance. So you can see there's a lot of moving parts. The Victim Services Division that sits under the Ministry of Justice and they're supposed to be providing support to children who have been ab- abused who may have to temporarily enter into state care so there are a lot of moving parts and as you said there are no meetings the only multi-agency meetings that are currently in place are when there's a review set up so if the, if they wanted to set up a review for the child care and protection act they may pull together a multi-agency group to make sure that all of these uh, stakeholders have input into the review itself. But in terms of the day to day monitoring of children in care, there is a serious lack of communication. And I think that it's really important that understanding that those kind of structural changes take time, that, as you said, those kind of meetings, the consistent sharing of information, because what you end up happening is that, you know, there's a grand plan to be made, a national plan prevention plan for against children of you know for children in that are exposed to violence there's another national plan against gender-based violence and those the actions that come out of those plans are often overlapping and where agencies could be collaborating to make sure that they're getting the work done more efficiently they're actually just either um doing the same work and not doing it as well as they could if they were to do it together or some of the work, because they're under-resourced and they're not collaborating, doesn't get done at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's, that's something that's problematic across many areas of government. It's not just true of state care. In terms of the state care specifically, one of the things that's systematically problematic, as I said, is that the Ministry of Education actually has very little control over what happens within the CPFSA. And that's the that's one of the major issues in terms of accountability. So as I said, the Ministry of Education and uh, the CPFSA is financed directly by the Ministry of Finance, which means that it the Ministry of Education has no control over the planning of the budget, over the implementation of the budget. And so in terms of holding the cpfsa accountable there is little room that the ministry of education actually has to make certain changes because they don't actually have because of the lack of legislation and the way the the governance system is set up there is actually very little that can be done and so they're in a complicated situation simply because of how the system is set up as well
1: oh imagine just imagine What's imagine? imagine right. All right, so I'm going to read a few statements, right, that I pulled from the report, right? And then we're going to ask a question here. But this, this this, the first statement. In 2020, there were four psychologists serving all of the 5,890 children. No, you never hear them. Let me just read that over again. In 2020, there were four psychologists serving all of 5,890 children in state care making Access to psychological support almost non-existent. Statement two: In March 2020, CPFSA, the Child Protection and Family Services, had about 100 social workers, each with an average caseload of about 150 children, with some managing as many as 200 children. Then you move to the third statement: In 2018, Jamaicans for Justice noted that, 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 yeah, because I couldn't bother writing the whole thing. There were approximately 10 members of staff assigned to monitoring over 50, 10 members of staff of the OCA, that's the Office of Children Registry, assigned to monitoring over 50 homes and the 1,772 children occupying them. 10 members, 10 members, 10, 10. So Dr. Levers, when it comes to lack of resources, and I think that's the biggest issue here, how bad is it? Because I just read like fee statement alone that I was just blown away by. But how bad is it? And in comparison to other countries that have the same population size and the same, I would say, um, yeah, the same same development and the same development track as Jamaica, like how bad are we compared to them when
0: it comes to lack of resources? Um, well, we're not incredibly worse than any other country that is comparable so when you look at comparable countries in terms of demographics in terms of the level of resources they're doing poorly we're doing poorly um you know i i don't want to make specific comparisons but i will say that what many of the countries who are cognizant of the lack of resources that they have is that they develop community mechanisms to address um the lack of resources so as i said Um, You know, many other countries, including countries like Rwanda, um, countries like Poland, um, have what they've done is is they've set up community-based approaches to care. So they, they strengthen their focus on foster care. So they try to ramp up their foster care elements so that children can be placed in homes. But also foster care is a less expensive option. You know, we spend far more on state care than we do on foster care. And actually it's cheaper to put children in foster care because you're not paying for some of the infrastructural things that you have to pay for in state care. You provide foster care parents with a stipend, which should be more than what it is now, but, you know, in terms of going to school and going, you know, having access to extracurricular activities, those are things that the state does no no longer would have to pay for once they're not in institutional care. You see that many uh, volunteer programs that are set up to put checks and balances so to make sure that they're, that people are being held accountable so that children have members of the community that they can go to in case they are being abused. You know, we could be making better use of our counselors that are in schools. We could be making better use of Uh, private sector providing job placements, we could be providing better care in terms of private practice individuals contributing their time, law students, medical students providing medical and um, legal advice to children that are in state care, maybe children that are having difficulties with the law, etc. And so really, I think we need to, you know, the reason that the The report is called Fix the Villages because we have a wealth of resources through the community that we're not actually using in order to help bolster or support the children that are in care, recognizing that we just don't have many of the resources in terms of social workers in terms of monitoring officers and also i think it's a matter of making sure that social workers and monitoring officers are adequately resourced and they have the adequate training some of the the anecdotal evidence that we've gotten from speaking to former wards of the state is that social workers genuinely do work very hard and many of the stories that we've heard of children receiving assistance is because they've gone to social workers and sought support through them, but again, they just don't. You know, when you're ha- when you have 150 cases to deal with, it's difficult to provide the same level of care to everyone, and some children will get left um, by the wayside.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think it was just to step out of stake here. I think the issue of Jamaican psychologists and. Just psychological support has been an ongoing thing. Like this is nothing new. Like literally, I remember two of the guys in and I'm still thought about it. Still thought about it. It really rubbed me. It really did. Um, they, like they sent in. They, I think we were like uh, less. It was it was like less than ten psychologists that w- went in. And in a span of months, they just come out, because there was not enough for them. There was not enough for them. And you have children exposed to such violence and again no surprise that our crime rate is the way it is we'll just have that conversation for another day like it's i don't get it i don't four 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 persons serving over five thousand children
0: four enough. four yeah and as you said what's happening in state care is really a microcosm of what's happening in the wider society we do know that we don't have enough psychologists in Jamaica. We don't talk about mental health enough. We actually have a report coming out by Capri talking about um, mental health and particularly within the context of COVID. So um, that's something that you can look forward to reading that's as well. The one on April
1: fifteenth, right? The one that's happening on April fifteenth. Yes, exactly. I have. I'll be having inside information. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Alright. Um, our next thing I want to touch on is the lack of evidence-based policies. No. A Jamaica. A Jamaica. So nine out of ten times policy I get implemented without lack of evidence. You yeah, that's not even just can't I do it over and over again and it now work, but my to do it over and over again. So is. Mm-hmm. Yes. So nothing new, nothing new, nothing new. But um how has the lack of evidence based policies um affected the way the government go about um caring for children in state care? Right? So yeah, just wanted to touch on that.
0: Yeah, I mean, what you essentially see, and again, this is true of other areas as well, is that when there are consultations done, usually those stakeholders that are consulted are other government agencies. Um, You know, it's very, the involvement of academics or the involvement of think tanks research um, is very limited um, or non-existent in many cases. But what happens within the context of state care, particularly as we've established children, these children are a particularly vulnerable group. Of All children are vulnerable, but the cohort of children that end up in state care are particularly vulnerable because of the very reasons that they go into state care in particular. And so what we've found is that there is a lack of research. So children themselves are not consulted, even though it is... Um, they are supposed to be under the Child Care and Protection Act, as well as under the Convention of the Rights of the Child. The voice of the child is supposed to be at the forefront of decisions around what institutions look like, around strategic decisions that are made, so at a governance level as well. Children, I mean, and it makes sense, right? Intuitively, if children are the people that are going to benefit from these these services and children are the ones that are most at risk certainly they should be able to speak to their own issues we should be able to speak to them to find out exactly what their issues are because children in Jamaica may not face the same issues as children in the United States and we have a tendency to adopt policies straight from developed countries thinking that it will work within our context when many of the issues that children are facing within um within Jamaica are not the same as the issues that children might face in Canada or in the UK or in or in America mm. or in Europe. And so that I think that's the first thing. And then in terms of carrying out research, one of the things that we don't do is we don't collect data or we don't collect it consistently. Wait, do you know, if the data is collected, let me tell you, if the data is collected,
1: you know, they might do the data collection in you know, some book or they might use some, Microsoft, some basic Microsoft software. Managa kalo which which particular ministry do it, but they've doing in 2021. They're doing it well. I mean, the
0: National Children's Registry, up until uh, you know at the time of the re- report being written, was using Microsoft Word to log its cases. Yeah. And as I said, it goes back to sharing of information. Really, what should be in place is a system whereby all of the agencies sitting under. Ministry of Education or that have a responsibility around child care and protection should have access to the information on some level they don't have to have access to raw data but they should have access to reports and actually what you see is that any reports that are are created so you know for instance the office of the children's Advocate delivers a report directly to Parliament because they're a subsidy of the Parliament uh, of Parliament you see that the CPFSA the CDA, and um, the NCR, they all have reports that go directly to the minister, but they don't share those reports with each other. And because there's a backlog in terms of producing the reports, I think um, many of the reports for CPFSA, I think they're at least four or three years behind in terms of, so the last available report on the website up until recently, or at the time of the writing report was somewhere around 2010, 2011. So there, there are many. You know, not only are they behind in producing the reports, but they're not sharing their information with each other. Mm-hmm. And so, what happens again? That also affects if we're not, um, you know, find if we if we don't have access to information about what the current state of childcare is in fostering, in adoption, in institutional care. How can we improve upon it? Not only just having the data, but then using the research that's available or using academia, um, the university and so on, all of the professional resources that we have to interpret that data to make comparisons between what's going on in other countries that have the same issues that we do, that have the same demographics that we do instead of adopting policy from countries that are not even remotely similar to us. um, We should be adopting policies or learning from learning lessons from other countries that are more similar to us in order to make sure that we're actually resolving the problems that we have instead of just putting a band that doesn't actually fit the the wound you mm-hmm. know
1: yeah, got you and um just just to go back to something that you said you said children chi- the voice of the children are supposed to be the loudest. those are the persons they go to and one of the issues that we, we even talk about and be like, yo, you are not consulting with children. Like, you're not consulting. Oh, but we are, we have this youth. I will have this youth and I'm like, they are just there to take pictures. They're, they're, like They're That's all they do. They are there to take pictures. They are not consulting with the children who are supposed to be consulted with. Like, when I make policies are not ask people, what you cannot advocate and you cannot be an activist. Or you cannot say you're, you're the voice of something when you're not consulting with the actual people. Like, me not get it. Me not, under, me not understand. Me not, it just not click. Me not, me not know what I click. And this is not a JLP, PMP for This is a Jamaica for This has been happening for years. When do not talk to people. So you, like, if you are saying that you want to fix children, fix the issue of children in state care and come to, like, an effective, sustainable them, but us feel like. If we're to ask the picture them, what they want and what's wrong. Like, it's them in the state. Because who don't ask, no, in there. Who is on these boards are not there. They're just there for picture taking on what's it, what's that. And it really burned me. It really, really does rub me wrong me. And it's across all ministries, really. Y'all be having you, as us pampered. Pampering, that's the word, pampering. You just, no, it's not just yeah but back to Dr. I'm so
0: sorry for that long rant, it just... oh, rant away and it's, uh, here's the thing I think um it's really important to have these discussions because a lot of people in the public don't know what's happening in state care right They you know they might turn a blind eye to it or the information is just not easily accessible to them so podcasts like yours are really important because it's a way for people who let's be honest, not many people, not everybody will read the report. I want everybody to read the report. Um, But for those people who don't read the report, it's really important for us to keep having these conversations and to keep Mm -hmm. letting people know that, hey, this is an issue, to keep letting people know that if they want to foster children, this is where they can go. Let them know about the new initiatives that are being created. So there's a new initiative that's, which I think is should be very successful, which aims to get children that are newborn, so zero to three, out policy. of state care. Yeah, zero to three policy. I know Nesta. Nesta has been talking about that lately. Yes, yeah, so the cradle to um, cradle to lo- crib. Yes, cradle to loving arms. I believe it's called, and really, it's a, it's such an important thing because we know that children who are in state care during that time, they lose a significant amount of development by being in institutional care by not having uh, the capacity to have to be held the physical element of development for children aged zero to three is really important and children zero to three should not be in state care because of the fact that we don't have these you know adequate resources we, we don't have nurses that are allocated to state care we don't have so many resources that are required for children to develop um, mm. you know so i think I think it's really important that we have these conversations to keep having these conversations, not just because we don't want the conversations to go away and we want to keep and, you know, um, encouraging the government to do, Um, their due diligence but also because we we need the public to be involved you know the public is part of the village we need people to become engaged with the idea of fostering we need people to become engaged with the idea of adopting you know and there is a certain stigma around adoption and fostering in Jamaica so many people I know who are adopted don't like to talk about it because they carry it as a form of shame and it's Mm -hmm. not that we should consider as something shameful if you are adopted or if you are fostered. Um, and so it's really important that the public becomes part of the village and becomes part of the um, you know, the stakeholder group to fix state care in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Without it, without the public fostering and uh, and adopting, children will continue to remain in state care. All right. Got you, got you, got you.
1: Um, as a down, I also want to touch on the most vulnerable of children in state care, and that's children who belong to the LGBTQ um plus community and also children with disabilities. Cause I think their 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 circumstances and their experience in state care are unique and different from their from their other counterparts. So can you speak on the data when it comes to those two groups?
0: Sure. So in terms of disabilities, I think we saw that over 60% of children in state care have disabilities of some kind, whether that's mental or physical, there are some, um, ele- some elements of disabilities across the majority of children in state care. And what we found in speaking to some of the managers of those children's homes is that many of them are less likely to be adopted because they're seen as a burden um, many of them do n- never actually leave state care because they're n- we don't have the resources to make sure that children with disabilities are adequately supported. You know, children in state care that have disabilities are not given additional resources. So in other countries like Trinidad, etc., foster care parents are actually given more money when they are fostering a child that has a disability because they have more needs, they have greater needs, they have different kinds of needs, as you as you pointed out. Um, in Jamaica, there is no distinction made between the allocation of money to children's homes that have a majority of of disabled children, and there are no there's no distinction made between. Foster parents and the stipend that re- they receive in terms of receiving children without disabilities or fostering children with disabilities. Wait, so wait.
1: That is the $16,000 6, 16, 16, um, every two months. Six every two months? Yeah. You know, I know it's 16000 but who? Okay, all right. And
0: anecdotally, what we found is that when the CPFSA or whichever agency within the CPFA that's responsible for giving foster care parents their stipend, if they don't have the money, foster care parents just don't receive the money. So there are many instances where foster care parents are not even getting the money that they should get as the stipend for fostering, because of you know the lack of resources, as it were. Um, So. That you know, so that's one of the major issues is that children, some children, even beyond the age of eighteen, particularly those with disabilities, never actually even leave state care. So you have children's homes that have children with disabilities that become adults with disabilities, and then they are, you know, in homes with other children who have disabilities, which in and of itself is a problem. Um, in terms of the LGBTQ plus community, that's not something that we collected data around. For the state care report, um, anecdotally, we know that, you know, many of the instances of sexual abuse that is taking place are, um, you know, same gendered, you know, between two persons of the same sex. Um, And it is an issue that needs to be explored and needs to be researched more adequately. Um, and certainly the stigma, and as you pointed out, the stigma and level, the mistreatment of children who are um, from the LGBTQ plus community is um, is inadequate and it, it is problematic. And there is a stigma that is attached to children from the LGBTQ plus community as well um, by other children, by staff members. And this goes back to kind of the training that's needed To make sure and the adequate monitoring that's needed to make sure that these vulnerable groups of children are not being mistreated, are not being taken advantage of. and so it's it's definitely an issue that requires more research and definitely an issue that needs to be addressed. And it goes back to the issue of representation. We need to make sure that children from the LGBTQ plus community, we need to make sure that disabled children, we need to make sure that teenage mothers, because there's a high percentage of teenage mothers in state care as well, um, that those children are being represented on the various boards and agencies that are responsible for making these decisions. Because it's one thing to add to create policy based on children in state care generally, but how are we centering the margins to make sure that our most vulnerable are actually being protected? Because they have unique needs and issues that need to be addressed in a way that's different from the general population.
1: As I speak about representation, again, the Indicom situation came to mind where you had staff at Rio Cobra calling these young boys um, homophobic slurs or they were creating stories about them and that really affected them, really affected the boys. And I think that what was good was that Indicom, their report centered around the fact that they actually talked to these young men. They talked to these young men about the problems. All right. So, Yeah. As, as Dr. Lever said, you have to have these children at the table, you know? And I even them at the table, them for t- give, the, the, give them space to raise their issue. That, that's what I'm getting. Give them space to raise their issue, because those two groups are definitely more vulnerable than the other, their counterparts. All right, so next question I want to get into... Um, Real quick, Dr. Libeson, I know you touched on it, but um, the way the report is set up, it seems as if there is no regulation governing adoption and faster care in Jamaica. It's like, it's just, yeah, yeah like, th- th- there's no, I don't know how to say it, it's just, it's not being effectively run. Like, in the regulation, menacing the rules, like, yeah can it can it I know you, speak, you touch on it throughout this interview but can you speak directly on those two issues of adoption and fostering?
0: yeah I mean we know that fostering and adoption takes a very long time um and as a consequence people are going outside of the state to um get adoptions to adopt children or to foster children. And that has its own issues because there's, you know, there's no checks and balances to, in place to make sure that people who are adopting children, if they go outside of the States are, actually have the best intentions for the children that they're adopting. Um, you know, I think in terms of fostering and adoption, as the report indicates, there's really no policies or protocols in place or no up-to-date ones in terms of adoption specifically that speak to how the adoption system and how foster placement should be run. Um, there's no ba- best practice to guide um, the adoption board or the agency that's responsible for fostering. There's no sharing of communication to make sure that the National Parenting Commission is involved. One of the main things that we have around adoption is that, and fostering is that children who are being fostered are not eligible for adoption. Children who are fostered technically will have to go back to state care before they're able to be adopted, which um, is not based in any evidence. It's contrary to best practice across most, if not all countries. I can't think of any country at the moment off the top of my head that has a similar practice in place. Um, And so there's no, and this is something that's created or these rules or these policies are created really by agencies that are, as we said, void of the voice of the children, void or limited to um, government agencies They don't have necessarily academics or children who, not children, um, experts of, within foster care and adoption on these boards. And so it's really hard to make best practice when you don't have the right players at the table. And so what you see in, in, in this scenario is that um, you know we have huge backlog. So as I said, 138 people have been approved as adopters, but they have they're yet to receive, um, or they're yet to actually receive the child that they've they've adopted. Um, there are not there are other rules around you not being able to go and meet children in order to adopt them prior to meeting them. Um, there are other rules around fostering. I think in 2011, the fostering association actually called the foster placement system of failure. And that was by the agency that was actually running or responsible for fostering in general. And, you know, it, it is a matter of resources, but it's also a matter of, as we said, there's no data being collected. We don't have any longitudinal research that indicates how children who enter foster care are are you know, how well they fare. We don't know what's happening to the children after they're being adopted. You know, do they stay in the ho- homes that they've been adopted? Do they end up on the streets? We don't have any indication of what's happening to children afterwards. And so it's really important that we start engaging in in research that's based in Jamaica to find out what the Jamaican situation is instead of leaning to our own understanding or leaning to this understanding of countries that do not bear any similarity to
1: all right got you it is with the hope that with capri report available and um it's available online it's a guys it's available on capri website also when the link that you click this on to listen on tenement media website be linked all our notes and sources for this episode and all the things that were mentioned in this episode so you're going to see the unicef report that dr levers talked about and this report Right, so you guys can go ahead and just skim through, read about it. And I think Capri had a launch. That launch is still on their YouTube channel. If you know, if you have, um, sight disabilities or you just don't, you just don't like reading or you just don't have the time to read, we're gonna have that up there as well so you can listen to the video. Um, yeah, but after you guys. before I close out, I just wanted you to speak on the recommendations that were given in the report. Um, I know, that some of them you already mentioned through the episode and that some of them are already being they they' being done by the government and i know as i said before the amendment of the c c p a um i know they got a new advisory board to advise the ministry. ministry i want to say it's ministry of youth
0: i'm going to say it's ministry of youth about ministry of youth. education youth and um information i think yeah. that's the full yeah I think they
1: got an advisory board recently they created a new advisory book. You know, Jamaican people love board and task force. That's two things them love. Um, I know in also I don't know how to say this verbatim. In the JLP manifesto, they did say that they are going to develop therapeutic therapeutic centers at Max Maxfield Park Children Home. I know they didn't make that promise. Um, if you guys want to also see JLP promises again it's on Tenement Yard Media website. If you go on the website and you click landlords and you click landlord promises, you will see all the promises JLP made in that August twenty twenty manifesto. That's it up, right? And um, I know I don't remember when he said it, but the next did that interview some weeks ago, I think, and he's speaking about developing um background data for children in state care, like as in like. But like, a, like a institution, like, you know, like a school where you have like a report and stuff, they're going to do that for each child. I thought that was early in place. I I just thought that was early in place, but I guess not. I guess not. And as Dr. Lever said, a 0-3 to three policy. Um, And there's also the SLB guarantors. I don't think it's in place yet, but they did promise also that children who are in, who are, who are in the system or in state care they will not be needing guarantors to have student loans. So I know currently, when the finance budget was un- finance budget was announced, um, that, um, Dr. Clark said that yo, you only need one guarantor. They did promise that children in state care would need none. So they're gonna be a plan that for just fulfilled over the next couple of years. But yeah, Dr. Levers, no matter enough. But what are other
0: recommendations that Capri had um through? Well, as you said, some of them we've mentioned already. The legislation is important, but it's a long-term change. We know that legislative review takes a long time, but we would love to see the review of the CCPA and the Adoption Act, which, have, which is something that's been discussed for quite some time to go through. Um I think in terms of creating best practice it's really important that the UN guidelines on alternative care are incorporated into our national legislation and that's something that many countries do you Wait, know it's really Can
1: I ask a, I ask a quick question before? You?
0: Are we sure. following those guidelines? That would be- um, So some of the guidelines are reflected in the Child Care and Protection Act but not all of them. Okay. And some of the guidelines no we are not following. At the moment, but it's not a unlike the you know Convention of the Rights of the Child. It's not a a human rights instrument that needs to be ratified. So many of the guidelines. So we have there are various uh, human rights instruments that are guidelines rather than treaties, right? And that's it. There's a distinction between the two. So the guidelines. Nobody countries are not under any obligation to ratify or to agree to these guidelines, but there are guidelines that are set up in place and they're very general guidelines that can then be adopted to whichever context they need to be adopted to. So whichever country is choosing to incorporate them and it's really a really good way of creating policy that is universally effective and then you know, um, whittling it down to make sure that they're being implemented in a way that meets the context specific nature of the place that you're implementing them in. Mm -hmm. Um, however, in terms of ratification, uh, you know, we have ratified the convention of the rights of the child. However, there is an optional protocol, which we opted out of, and that optional protocol actually provides a monitoring and accountability element. Essentially what it means is that the CRC, which is the committee of the rights of the child, will be able to come to Jamaica without invitation from the state to monitor and assess what's taking place. And, you know, many, many countries, not specific to Jamaica, but many countries um, avoid this because they don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want outsiders to come in and highlight internationally what's taking place. And, you know, if but the optional protocol is an unbiased, impartial approach to accountability And if we're doing our jobs and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, because, you know, every country has a standard. And the idea is that even within human rights conventions, the standard is that you're supposed to be consistently working towards that standard. So once the efforts are being made, even if we're not meeting that standard because we genuinely don't have the resources, that will be made abundantly clear through Mm. the monitoring and evaluation Um, So that's something that we think definitely needs to be done. Um, In terms of medium-term changes, so something that can be done soon but may take a little while, it's around digitization of case files, which, again, as you pointed out, is something that should be in progress already. Um, There is a software database management package called Sahima that is being used by the CDA. And uh, as far as I'm aware, it's currently being expanded but it should be expanded to all agencies so that there is more sharing of information so that investigations can be carried carried out more efficiently. One of the things that we found is that, you know, the CDA, the OCA and Sisoko are all... Carrying out you know, there there's a multi-agency approach to carrying out investigations. However, what will happen is the OCA will come and interview a child, then the CDA will come and interview a child, then Sisoka will come and interview a child. And really, what you're doing is traumatizing that child over and over again by having them have to explain themselves to three different people. So, if one person or one agency is responsible for interviewing a child who has been abused, and then that information can be shared. Accordingly, with the relevant agencies, it makes the it makes the investigation quicker, it makes it more efficient, and it makes it less um, impactful on the child.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: or less impactful in a negative way. So we really would love to see um, greater sharing of information through use of database management, effective database management. And also what the database management systems would allow for is that we'd be be able to collect data consistently. And then that data can be used to inform policy as it should. Um, And then lastly, there are a number of short-term changes, one of which, as you mentioned, is already in place, which is the advisory council. So the advisory council is set up to receive regular reports from the board of visitors. So the board of visitors is another body that is meant to monitor children's homes, but they have kind of greater access. They don't have to request access. They should have autonomy to go and visit children's homes as and when. And so the board of visitors should be giving reports on what they find through their monitoring visits to the children's, to the um, advisory council. And then the advisory council should be providing um, advice and support, not only to the minister, but also to the uh, CEO of the CPFSA. And so that creates another kind of sharing of information which stands independently. So unlike other agencies that are involved in monitoring and evaluations, like the CDA officers, the advisory council would sit outside of the CPFSA. It wouldn't sit underneath the CPFSA, wouldn't report to the CEO. Um, And I believe that's being done at this moment in time that, you know, members have been chosen and and allocated accordingly. And we'd love to see youth representation on that board as well as all other boards. We do have the chi- Children's Advisory Panel, which is very important. But as I said, it doesn't represent those who are most at risk, like disabled, LGBT, LGBTQ, teenage mothers. Those persons are not represented, and so their views are not represented. Um, and in terms of just limiting it to the children's advisory panel, we would like to see any single board that has to do with making strategic decisions in child care and protection should have a youth representative um, in in place. And so those are some of the recommendations or all of the recommendations that were made under um, the Capri report after having reviewed the research.
1: Okay. Alright, thank you. I hope whosoever powers that be is, is listening to this and hear them. Cause I really do not want to revisit this 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 conversation. I just listen, must feel like at some point in our development stage some conversation will just know for have my class, the situation fix. <laughs> it fixed. Yeah. I'm gonna yeah. feel like we're continuously having these conversations every year. Every single year, we have these conversations, and it's like it's the same recommendations given. Because I'm sure I'm positive I've heard these recommendations, some of these recommendations before they have just not been implemented. And I think that's the sad part. You're yes. continuing telling people what to do, they're not doing it, and it's like we style. And I feel like the stalling occurs as a change different administrations. Let
0: us just start back over, like, yeah. And it, and if if the evidence is leading the changes that are being made, then no matter who is in power, the changes should be the same, right? Because yep. what you're being dictated by is what the data actually shows. And the data is not going to change. You know, it's it's hard to manipulate data from one recommendation to another. So if we're allowing the evidence to dictate what should be done, regardless of who's in power, Um, the changes should be the same and i will say that you know minister morgan received this report prior to its publishing and uh, this is something that we do across the board at capri yeah i know
1: I when i interviewed Dr. king about nht i know the question one of the questions i asked him was if nht has received a copy of the report and he said that
0: an institution the institution usually get it always get it before they get, they get it before we have what is called a round table review after the after our final draft is you know ready to be printed and we're ready to, before we launch the report we have our round table review where other experts and the institutions that are being investigated or being researched are invited to make commentary if there's something that we've gotten wrong or something that needs to be updated they have every opportunity to be a part of the research process. So it's not something that we're investigating as a means of holding them accountable or to be combative or to con- condemnatory in any sort of way. All of the organizations that we do research on are invited to be a part of the process at mm-hmm. every, single stage while we're collecting the data once we've done the report and even as part of the launch so you'd have seen that minister morgan was actually part of the launch that we did mm-hmm. and, you know instead of being combative this is one of the instances which I'm, um, i personally as this being my first report i just started working at capri uh late last year um the minister has been very open and you know welcoming of the recommendations that we've had and the changes to be made so hopefully, um, you know, the fact that we're able to work in collaboration with um, the ministry will help to make sure that, you know, these changes are actually implemented. And as you can see, the advisory council has been implemented or is being implemented now, the zero to three policies there. Um, we hope that some of the recommendations or some of the references that we've made to what other countries have done in terms of really Amping up um the community-driven element of state care can be utilized or can be embraced. So yeah,
1: got you, got you, got you. Yes. Yeah, so um, that's our episode. You know, as I said before, the 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 report is very comprehensive. Um, definitely, really to have time, but there are other resources. So you listen to the episode here. So that's good. But you can also watch the 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 launch video. We'll link it, and you can um. Get a more get get a breakdown of it further, and also hear what the Minister of State has to say about the report. So
0: yeah, so sorry, uh we are having an Capri will be having an Instagram live somewhere within the next week and a half, where we'll be actually talking with some former wards of the state who have read the report and who have their own um, stories to share. Because as we pointed out, it's really important that we listen to. Persons that are ultimately benefiting from the recommendations that we're making. Mm-hmm. So, we're having an Instagram live. So, please, you know, head over to the Capri Instagram page or our Twitter or our Facebook so you can keep up to date with the Instagram conversations that we're having with former wards of the state.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: we've, we've been having conversations around abortion and reproductive health rights, and we'll continue to engage with, you know, pers- persons who are benefiting or affected by the recommendations that we're making
1: mm-hmm. got you and if listeners if you forget about the event Tenement your media has a gathering page where we post um flyers of different vir- most of them are virtual different virtual events happening in that we believe you would want to attend based on our episodes and yeah you gonna go by there and see what's happening in that week it's sorted by week by the week, so yeah. And usually we have the links we can just press, and you go, you're, you're taking directly to the place where the event is taken. So once Capri, you know, published them flyer, eh, it just gonna put upon it, and that sounds oh, no good. Yeah, but Dr. Levers, thank you so much for coming in, um, and having this conversation with us and breaking down the work that Capri does and it and the data in the support. Um, it was very eye opening. Um. I believe a lot of most Jamaicans know that the state state homes are just it's a lot, but to see data to back up the stories is always some is always a good thing. So thank you and everybody else at capri for the work that they're doing. Yeah, so that's our episode. Um our previous episode, we talked to Dr. Richard Robertson, who is the leading vo- the leading volcanologist at, at um St. Vincent and Grenadines. Um he's the head of UA. Seismic research center and um yes, yeah, so I hope by the time you guys hear this episode, you have donated something to one of the different orgs or are having their drive to assist our fellow West Indians um in their time of need. So just always remember that. I just remember that party. understand? Just keep the same vin- the Vinces in your thoughts. Persons from Barbados, persons from St. Lucia who are going to be affected by the asphalt, just keep them in your thoughts, donate if you can raise awareness um also if you can so yeah so that's our episode i'm davy um thank you all for listening and we're going to have protege close you up so bye bye yeah. right over my look over here. Oh. yeah uh-huh. Judge ja, your ja, bless I with the brightest light and i yeah, shine upon you them blind how there's a truth and light there's there's a truth and right. And until the day that my soul takes flight Babylon will hear my voice Now with the ears of his and mine